0: Hi, I'm Christy Hurt, the founder of The CoLab. We are a collective of brand professionals sharing our career stories. Every week we pair up two members and they interview each other. So you'll get to hear one episode this week and one next week. We're heading into our third year of The Collab, and you can join us too. Sign up at jointhecolab.com and then tell your story. Hi,
1: everybody. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Yashika Dutt. I'm a creative consultant, I'm a writer, I'm an author. And today, we are here to speak to Jonathan. Jonathan is the CEO and founder of Little Red Fashion, which is the first kids' fashion edtech and publishing company in the history of fashion in US, and the author of their first augmented reality enhanced book, The Little Red Dress. Prior to this, Jonathan spent the last 20 years as a freelance strategic consultant and fine artist. Abstract painting if you're curious, and you can look it up on his Instagram at the real J Joseph. And he's also helped nonprofits and businesses alike to raise funds and expand their missions and impact across diverse industries from luxury women's wear to real estate, commodities, and more. I think this is going to be a really exciting conversation and I'm ready to dive in. Jonathan, how are you feeling?
0: I am doing wonderfully, Yashika. I am so excited to join an amazing cast of previous participants in this amazing podcast at The CoLab and to spend some more time with you and really uh, absorb this amazing energy that you have as well, Yashika.
1: Thanks, Jonathan. I think I'm looking forward to that today as well. We met only last week, but there's so much common ground that the collab thought that it would be a good idea to put us in a room for a conversation together. And I think they might be right. So I want to know everything. I want to know where did you grow up? Where did you go to school, high school, undergrad, grad school? And why did you make these choices? Also, you know, I have another second parter, which I, am you know, feel free to answer when you want. But I'd also want to know, would you do it differently today if you could? How do you feel about that?
0: I have an interesting origin story in certain ways. I was born in Medellin, Colombia in 1986 and was orphaned and adopted all within the first year of my life. And I came to the United States at nine months old. And I was uh, raised first in New York, then in Connecticut and bouncing back and forth between the two. My mom is a native New Yorker and my dad is from Tehran. So uh, I definitely had a very interesting time growing up between those two places and with that sort of crucible of culture. As for doing things differently, I don't think so. I think being both country mouse and city mouse was definitely beneficial. I like my solitude and meditative state like an artist, but I also crave and love the excitement of the city and so many things to do. So being right outside New York City definitely afforded me certain privileges and opportunities that helped nurture my creative spirit, my entrepreneurial spirit, and all the things that make me and my career what they are.
1: Wow. That's really exciting, Jonathan. I think we talked about it this a little bit, but I'd like to know a little bit more about the cross-cultural connections that you have in your blood. You know, you're from the Heran to New York and Colombia. That's a fascinating trajectory. And not many of us have access to that much heritage and rich history. How has that impacted your life?
0: Infinitely. I mean, uh, you know, we in fashion talk all about identity. Fashion is about identity. It's intrinsically tied to who we are and what we are and what makes us the beautiful creatures that we are as we navigate on this planet. And for me to have been able to question the idea of identity in a very basic and fundamental way that unless you are adopted or unless you are raised a different culture or ethnicity than the one that's, quote, in your blood. Some people struggle with that. There are plenty of international adoptees who uh, don't navigate transracial identity very well. For me, I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal. I did not grow up knowing that I was adopted. I, I found out I was adopted around the age of 10 or 11. And I look like my adopted parents. So for me, uh, it was quite a surprise. <laughs> but what I think it did is it afforded me this uh, wonderful opportunity at a young age to really seriously sit with the question of identity and self and, and, and what makes us who we are and how we express that to the outside world and, and how we convey those things. And so it's no surprise to me that I was drawn to fashion in many ways as a result especially as a kid with cerebral palsy as well. I grew up wearing leg braces or AFO braces and covering those with socks became a passion of me and my moms. We went around New York and Lord knows we found every tall sock that would cover the leg braces but still match my outfit. Sometimes you'd find an outfit to match the socks and it was kind of my foray into fashion and what sort of gave me the bug as it were. I always ask people uh, through Little Red Fashion, like, what's your favorite fashion memory? And it's because of those socks and those leg braces and the way I was able to experience fashion and identity as self-making. And I think it's something I try to carry through in my work today at Little Red Fashion.
1: That's amazing. You know why? Because I was thinking, as people with marginalized identities, which we both share, and people who don't fit the structure of how fashion is laid out to be, a lot of us have to navigate this world in our own ways. And that leads us, in fact, that forces us, one can say, to be more creative, to find our own style, because, you know, what's on the racks is not necessarily available to us. So we have to find out workarounds that creates, and in my opinion, engenders a real interest in the subject. So, you know, hearing you talk about, cerebral palsy and your experience with the socks, I think that's fascinating. And I would love to hear, more, and I'm sure our audience is interested too, how did that move you into the direction of fashion? Did your upbringing, your schooling have anything to do with being in fashion, being part of the fashion industry. How did you get a start?
0: Well, it fell in my lap, really. I was actually, if we want to t- trace my career back to college and thereafter, um, I was actively discouraged from studying fashion. My father, I think there's plenty of folks in the industry that I've spoken to since who also have immigrant parents in our, our first generation, is looked upon as opposed to, let's say, a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, um, which are like your Persian American big three. <laughs> and outside of that you know and it's, it's natural it's normal in the sense that when you have immigrant parents they are very risk averse typically they want their kids to be safe secure stable predictable those are comforting values and things that um, people who do not live an immigrant experience at some level in their family recently either currently or in the recent past maybe don't have an appreciation for but can from the outside sometimes appear um, a little too stringent But also it is, it is strict. And it is a a crucible in which we are formed. And I think a lot of people in the fashion industry have relayed to me that they felt similarly either discouraged or, "Mm, you're really sure you want to do that? You sure you want to go into that? Wouldn't you rather go into something stable like insert thing here? I got that. And I got that in a way that, in retrospect, um, I do wish I had done that differently. I kind of wish many times that I had stuck it out and been stubborn and been like, no, this is what I'm going to do. But instead, I went into English literature because I was a writer and a storyteller. And uh, what it didn't occur to me at the time, and now with time has, has become apparent, is that I have always been a storyteller. My job is narrative. Whether that narrative was, uh, you know, as a freelance consultant building business plans, building branding identities building different stories through everything from a spreadsheet to an advertisement or copy that's all storytelling and it didn't occur to me until i was older that i had been doing storytelling this whole time and that's what actually i wanted to be doing in fashion uh it was really uh telling different stories and so now in a full circle way i literally do that for a living as a publisher for little red fashion and create stories about fashion so what I love about this podcast and the collab is, is that we get to explore sort of the hermeneutics and the loops over the arc of our reality that have brought us to where we are today in fashion.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you already mentioned so many trajectories that your career has taken. And I was curious about, has that path been very straightforward and linear for a lot of people? If you go on the LinkedIn profile, you can see that there is a straight arrow pointing in the direction that is today. But it seems like you explored a lot of different routes. And we'd like to know, how did you arrive at the reality that you are at today as a publisher? What was the, that circuitous route? What did that look like?
0: So as I said, I studied English literature and art history at Hofstra University uh, for my undergrad. I almost didn't. I almost didn't finish my bachelor's, actually. My college career was cut in half. My mother passed away from metastatic breast cancer when I was 19. Oh,
1: I'm sorry.
0: Oh, no, play the hand you're dealt, as they say. And she, as a lifelong survivor of metastatic breast cancer, meaning like there was no point in my life that I knew her well, I had a really good role model for rolling with punches and meeting reality head on without sugarcoating it and just saying like that in its own way definitely prepared me. And it was something that served me well uh, as a child living with a disability (laughs) that I was, you know, actively navigating as well. So I had a really good role model. In that regard. And so during college, I, you know, realized that I was really great at writing. Growing up in high school, I was always a writer and I was basically a slave of the business department. I did a lot of business competitions in high school. In college, I continued to do so uh, and started just freelancing, building pitch decks, building internal documentation, SOPs, all this kind of stuff. We'll always say, What are you gonna do with an English degree? I'm gonna tell stories and you're gonna learn narrative and you're gonna learn how to structure an argument and you're gonna learn how to Again, relay things and being relatable. And so, the more you can do that, particularly the more I realized I could do that, dovetailed with my public speaking abilities, it started becoming very easy to just run workshops and do different things like that. I was very blessed. And this is where I'm going to just pause and say to anyone listening. If you have any disposable income or you're looking for CSR initiatives, you should really invest in education, particularly early childhood education, because if not for the educators in the public school system that I went to who saw that I was exceptional at speaking and gave me opportunities to stand behind a podium and deliver speeches about anything from anti-Semitism to homophobia in the classroom to um, other historically marginalized struggles that were going on around them that people weren't seeing. I would not be in the position that I am today, and I would not have learned about the power that words hold, and I would not have been able to explore so freely all these different ways of storytelling that are now tied together into the arc of my career in a seemingly disparate route. I rolled from freelancing to freelancing after college and going along this route, just, you know, sometimes it would be a client in real estate. Sometimes it would be a mom and pop bakery or a small store. Sometimes it would be all these different things. But I was always interested in fashion. So still fashion hadn't found me in that direct way. Then I started a Buddhism-based mindfulness media company out of a dorm room with a friend named Kai. And it was my first foray into publishing, you could say, into internet publishing particularly. And this was uh, 2009 to 2015, roughly. Acting as an editor, first, first, we did not set out to be a, a publication of any kind. We were originally drop shipping items for Western Buddhists, and then uh, importing, exporting certain higher quality ritual items with uh, ethical provenance to Western Buddhists, and then working with those organizations to make sure that any programs that they were doing were benefiting directly benefiting uh, people in uh, Nepal and in the communities where they were getting these artifacts, because we do not like appropriation. You know, we then were teaching Western people about these different things, whether it was thangkas or different um, you know, singing bowls, which are a highly contested topic because they seem like they're very old, but they're not actually very old. But that's a different podcast. <laughs> in doing that and educating, we started becoming a blog like everybody did back then. And we ended up picking up a readership that then started sending us so many articles that we decided to pivot to a user-submitted content model. And by the time I left us in 2014, we were reaching about two million people a month. Two million, did you say? I have to interrupt and
1: make you say that again. Two million people you were reaching in a month with that organization, with the publishing house that you set up about Buddhism and artifacts from Nepal.
0: That is amazing. It's called Art of Dharma. It was kind of like elephant journal Um And It was my first opportunity to exit something, A, and B, I was faced with a very real decision. We reached an impasse, my co-founder and I, of creative differences, and I, I walked away. And I actually left everything on the table because I said, you know what, we never started this to make money. We really genuinely started it because... Through this person, I found Buddhism and meditation in the wake of my mother's passing in a way that was very impactful for me. And I started Art of Dharma because mindfulness practice saved my life and was really helpful to me. And I wanted to share that with people and explore it with people who are also looking to do that. And I walked away and uh, went to Columbia for my master's because I said, I've been working for Art of Dharma and I've been working with various community organizations and my own wife on the side for years. Let's formalize that. Let's formalize all the activism I was doing in the queer community. Let's formalize all of this and and learn how these systems work, right? Let's talk about the system of philanthropy and corporate social responsibility and how all these mechanisms function. And so I went to grad school to study that and that became my passion. Again, fashion still hadn't found me, but I was still loving fashion uh, in my own way, and so still we are not there. And in the midst of that, after my master's, I started consulting to a number of community-based organizations, particularly in the health space, but I could feel like there was more to come. Sometimes you, you feel things before they get to you, and so I had A couple of colleagues say, you know, you're doing all this fundraising in the charitable sector. Have you done, thought of doing more strategic consulting for businesses and startups and this kind of a thing? And I said, ah, you know, like I don't have the bandwidth. And then I dropped a few clients and I thought, okay, now I have the bandwidth. And so I started recording some fashion clients and some lifestyle clients. And lo and behold, I found my way to fashion that way. Uh, it was offered through a friend out of brunch. In the hamptons who said to me like hey i have this friend he's putting together a line he's really great you guys should work together and so we did for a number of years and i picked up a couple other clients here and there as well and i had the fashion bug and was like in my little fashion lane doing that but while i did that i was put off by any of the number of microaggressions or uh, things that are sort of the darker side of the industry that we don't often like to talk about and they were the very things that i knew i was going to come up against as an activist. And that was sort of a reckoning for me where I said, I love this world, but I don't want to perpetuate the worst of us at all. It, it's not an ethos alignment for me. And so, you know, a couple of years in, I, uh, during one particularly stressful fashion week, not that there's a not stressful kind, I separated from all my clients and said, like, this is no longer for me. It's no longer in alignment. Operating this way is no longer fulfilling me. I'm just going to not, you know, not do this anymore. Then on the train home, I remembered a conversation that I had with one of those clients about the idea of the stories that clothes tell. The idea that any garment goes through so many lives before it gets to you, after you do with it what you will, etc. And why don't we tell those stories better or at all? And I started sketching this little red dress, like just on my phone with my finger on the yeah. one train.
1: And it transformed into the book. That is now out in the world. It's been a year since you published that. Is that correct? Or is it very recent?
0: No, it's very recent. The Little Red Dress was uh, published this year in hardcover copy format. We did a small pre-launch pre-order for the holiday season for our early supporters that were just like chomping at the bit. First major pre-order cycle with the completed AR opens this summer. I'm very excited because the things that we are doing with this simple story that started on the one train with a little sketch on my iPhone has just transformed through countless feedback loops into something I could have never imagined you know, the opportunity to take all the reasons I left the industry, turn them on its head and say, let's fix this through ensuring that another generation doesn't perpetuate the problematic behaviors of the current one. And it's the past ones. And we can do it in a way that reconnects those of us who are jaded with the reasons we love what we're doing, the reasons we love the industry, the reasons we first realized we had a connection to fashion as anything, as a thing, as something that enriches our lives, something that empowers ourselves. I think that combination, this idea of building, building for the future in a way that allows the present to celebrate and reconnect with their why so that they're then able to say, okay, if this is the why, what's not working? It becomes a much more fertile and receptive sort of ground where you can germinate the seeds of systemic change in an entrenched industry, where you can use DEI and CSR and strip them of their empty parts and take the best of it and really build intentional structures around those concepts that actually work to further level the playing field, democratize the industry and solve the systemic issues that are causing havoc on the global South and the planet at large.
1: Jonathan, that was a beautiful answer. And I really enjoyed following your entire journey right from college and starting publishing for a company that you started in your dorm and then your journey to Columbia. I would like to add, I don't think we know this about each other, but I went to the journalism school, maybe around the same time you did, in 2014. So it's quite possible we were on campus at the same time, and it's quite fortunate that we get to meet now all these years later. I'm so excited for this conversation because there are so many common threads that we share, and clearly you've had this wonderful, illustrious career where you've literally pulled yourself by the bootstraps and made a space for yourself in an industry that wasn't necessarily built for people like us. And you not only made a space for you, but now you're ensuring that you make a space for generations to come. You are creating literature for children to, like you said, weed out the systemic issues that all of us, as people of color, as women, as people who are not from this industry, While entering fashion. So I think there is so much for you to be proud of. But if I could close with one question, I would want to know what is the one thing, just one thing, that you're most proud of in your long career so far?
0: Oh, wow. What is the one thing I am most proud of? That's a tough one. I think for me, the thing that I'm most proud of, honestly, is that through the work that I do, I have been privileged enough to heal a profoundly wounded inner child which is the greatest gift that I can give myself and through my work the world because until my cup is full no one else's can be filled through me and I know that I was given a very tremendous gift of articulation and power with words and and, and systems thinking and as a result of that I have a duty to speak for the unspoken and I've always felt this way since I was a child. You know, I gave my first public speech at 13, 14, 14, excuse me, 14. I view my work very intentionally. Wow. 14. Yeah. And when I was 14, I delivered a speech on anti Semitism in one part of the year, and then later that year on homophobia in the classroom. And then I repeated that speech again a year later on homophobia in the classroom for a panel of the Connecticut Educators Association at a time when people really weren't talking about these things. And it was actually at that time that someone took my father aside and said, you shouldn't worry about your kid. He's going to be fine. He can talk. I remember him not only being proud of me, but as a queer Iran- person li- with an Iranian father, it was a very shocking for me to hear how proud he was of me about that situation he found very uncomfortable for him because he would took a very long time um, to come to terms with the fact that I am gay. So at the time, him being really proud of that was, was very formative for me. And so it was, that ended up being a very important moment for sure.
1: so important for immigrant parents in particular to tell us how proud they are of us, right? Like it's a story that we share so many of us and not just immigrants. I know that this is a common theme in a lot of cultures within the United States as well, where It's hard for parents to tell their children how much they love them. And I sincerely hope that your book, with all that wonderful things that it's doing already, helps to change mindsets that have been a part of our thinking systems for such a long time. Jonathan, it was such a pleasure to speak to you today. I can't wait to see all the wonderful things that you go ahead and do next. Thank you for speaking to me. It was a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Thank you so much, Yashika. It was such a pleasure to share this space with you and really chart a somewhat circumlocutive path through my professional and, and really philosophical development. And I'm so glad to share this conversation with fellow members of The collab. and I hope you enjoyed it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much to The CoLab for organizing this podcast, for giving us the space and the opportunity to get to know our members a little better and learn from them. Yours is such a fascinating journey. I think anybody who's listening will leave be extremely inspired. Definitely, I can say that for myself. Thanks, everybody. Thanks uh, to all those who are listening. Have a great day.
0: Thank you, everyone. You can learn more about my story at therealjjoseph.com or littleredfashion.com. Thanks so much for being here for the CoLab Career Stories Podcast. Please follow us on social media at Join the CoLab and sign up to become a member and share your story at jointhecolab.com.